the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things. Put them in your brain. Hello and welcome to Folk Radio. This is... <laughs> I wanted to try to switch it up by saying something different, because we always say the same thing at the beginning of everyone, but then I couldn't check of anything. Hello and welcome to... Radio of Funk. <laughs> yeah. This is your host, Peter. And this is Kyle, your other host. Bam, I switched it up. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in a bit of the vein of the fact that we did a whole episode on Tarantino, I think we mentioned in that episode, and I think we've been mentioning for a while that we wanted to do one surrounding black exploitation music and film. Mm-hmm. Because you may or may not know that the black exploitation genre was a pretty popular but short-lived genre in the 70s that um, was f- pretty culturally influential but also led to a number of really good um, musical hits for artists that composed or wrote songs for these normally low-budget movies. Uh, the, the songs would go on to become really successful. Yeah. I guess a little bit of background on the genre of black exploitation. It's a really socially conscious sort of subgenre that was really alive for about four years in the 70s, from like 71 to like 75, maybe 76. And they were, these black exploitation films were originally made specifically for a sort of an urban black audience, but the, uh, the appeal of the films soon broadened past that to cross racial and ethnic lines. So, you know, white people could enjoy them as well. The term black exploitation is actually a portmanteau, obviously, of the words black and exploitation. It kind of it jumped upon the briefly common use of the word sexploitation for films that were very porn-centric, <laughs> whether or not they were actually porn or they were just filmed with lots of sex in them. But the actual word was coined by the early 1970s NAACP head Junius Griffin, who was an ex-film publicist. So I guess in his describing of the genre, he coined that term. Mm. And the films were usually, uh, the, they were like the first genre to feature soundtracks of funk and soul music, as well as primarily black cast. I suppose that makes sense if they're geared towards a black audience. Right. The magazine Variety uh, credited the movie Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, released in 1971, as the sort of invention of black exploitation, while others argue that the more Hollywood-financed and successful film Shaft, also released that year, is closer to being sort of the genesis of the genre, mm. and is thus more likely to have begun the trend. Yeah. I don't know, I mean, I've seen Shaft, and I've seen pieces of Sweet Sweetbacks. Mm. Shaft was definitely more uh, polished yeah. as a film, but I think Sweet Sweetback uh, was much more grounded in what would become the roots of the genre, very yeah. politically motivated. Shaft was kind of a warmed-over version of that. Yeah, because, I mean, as you know, I did a fair number of research in school um, on Sweet Sweetback. And, and I, yeah, that was more uh, definitely the, the, the earliest one, mm. the first black exploitation film. I think a lot of people consider it that it is. Shaft was more of the first successful successful one and i think that one especially was able to be more broad audiences like you were saying like with white people and stuff mm-hmm. whereas i think sweet sweet was a little bit more almost artsy and a lot more geared toward the black audience of the time yeah definitely but yeah i guess since we're talking about those two films i guess we should uh jump into those two first 
so yeah, Shaft obviously being the much more successful of the two films was probably also equally as successful from a musical standpoint because of the title song written by Isaac Hayes. The song Shaft actually also won an Academy Award for Best Original Song, which is a huge deal, and was one of the top hits in 1971, reaching number one for two weeks in the Billboard Hot 100. Mm. At the Academy Awards the following year in 1972, Isaac actually performed the song live in his trademark chainmail vest that he often wore, you know, very ex- nipple-exposing. That's how they advertise. I've never seen that. <laughs> That's how they advertise chainmail vests. They expose your nipples. Cool. But I guess later on in the program, he accepted the award for his song in a tuxedo. So it's nice that he didn't <laughs> didn't expose whoever was announcing the award to his nipples. I didn't know that that song won an Academy Award for Best Song. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Which... Back in 1971, that's a huge deal. That was three years after the Civil Rights Act was passed. Yeah, and this is just when Black Exploitation was starting, so... Exactly. That's really so cool. it definitely got a lot of rec- recognition, at least from a musical standpoint, by, you know, Hollywood. So, yeah, the film uh, was really, that year, I think part of the reason that it was so, um, was so highly accredited was it was only one of three profitable movies that year actually made by MGM, which was really hurting at the time. Mm. And it grossed what Time Magazine called an astonishing $13 million on a budget of 500000 which wow. is insane to have that big of a profit margin. Yeah. As many people say, they believe it spawned several years of the black exploitation action genre, mm-hmm. but it also earned enough money to really save MGM from bankruptcy. Mm. So, That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Isaac Hayes obviously wrote and performed the song for the film, so let's take a little listen to the title song, Shaft, by Isaac Hayes. See, this cat shaft is a bad mother. I'm done my shaft. He's a complicated man, but no one understands. It's very, very culturally influential. It's been spoofed and used so many times in yeah. everything they, that I can think of. Um, they made uh, a remake of it with Samuel Jackson, right? They did? Oh, dear yeah, God. I didn't see it, but... That sounds it. amazing and terrible. <laughs> That's... Because, you know, like... Especially nowadays, it seems like they're just making a crap load of remakes from the 80s. Mm-hmm. I foresee that in the next couple of years, they push back the remakes because they run out of 80s movies. So they push back further into the 70s mm-hmm. and they start remaking all of these awesome black exploitation films in a modern. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. Like, I would okay. seriously enjoy that. I would wonder what the. I'm, because, I mean, like, the, the social. Uh, Ramifications? And, yeah, are just so much different now. Yeah, or like than it was back then because it was a really like a almost like a power thing. Yeah, for, for black people, but like now, you know, I don't think it's quite as uh, relevant. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, for example, with um, Django, as we were talking about in the other episode, I mean, that's the modern black exploitation that right there, you know, and that was that that was very popular. So yeah, I, I don't doubt that it could become a popular genre. Well. If they if they do if they do do it like I mean the one thing Django did do undoubtedly was kind of put the discussion of slavery back in people's minds because it really showed it for how brutal it was. Right. If these films could harness that and really show just the disturbing nature of racism, even in the seventies, yeah. if they if they put it back in that time time period, uh, just show the absurdity of racism in that time period, then maybe, you know, they could still be used for political ends nowadays. Yeah. 
Remember the idea that I thought up of? Science fiction? Yeah, it's like a mix black between black exploitation and like Blade Runner, so it's in the future. They they did that. It was called Pluto Nash. <laughs> oh, God. I didn't see that, but... Um, oh, God, it was so... I, yeah, Eddie Murphy. But yeah, I think if like if they did a movie like with that tone, like in the future, like dystopian future black exploitation, that would be incredible. But I think we're yet to see one, except for maybe Pluto Nash. <laughs> anyway, getting back into reality a little bit. So as we were saying before, I think that the first black exploitation, and there's some argument between Shaft and this other film called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Now that was directed by Melvin Van Peebles. He actually didn't have the money to hire a composer, so he composed pretty much all of the film's music himself. Um, but he didn't know how to rate, he didn't know how to read or write music, which is interesting. Um, so he numbered all the keys on his piano so that he could remember the melodies. Uh, Van Peebles stated that most filmmakers look at a feature in terms of image and story, or vice versa. Effects and music are strictly secondary considerations. Very few look at film with sound considered as a creative third dimension. So I calculate that scenario in such a way that sound can be used as an integral part of the film. And, um, I, yeah, this film really does do that because there's a lot of intercutting of different images at the same time as different sounds and people just talking. It's, it's hard to explain, but yeah, I, I can really see, cause he was, it was almost experimental in a way, this film. Would you say it's kind of noir, kind of like harking back to that 40s noir style a bit or? Am I stretching it? My, that might be stretching it, but um, okay. yeah, I mean, I think you could pick elements out of that, maybe. Um, but it is it is a little bizarre, though, so you have to go into it knowing that, but I think, yeah, like like he says, it, it was it is an experimentation of, of sound and visuals together, mm. uh, which makes it kind of interesting. So like I said, Van Peebles, the director, he composed the film music himself, but the music was performed by the group Earth, Wind, and Fire, who at the time were unknown, but then later they became one of the biggest like funk disco groups of all time, basically. So this was one of their first gigs. And they were living in a single apartment with hardly any food. So this goes to show how unpopular they were at the time. Van Peebles' secretary was dating one of the band members and convinced him to contact them about performing the music for the film. Van Peebles projected scenes from the film as the band performed the music. So they performed it live, basically just going off of what they're seeing. I don't know if yeah, you know, I don't think that really happens anymore because not at all. There's a very, there's a you know very strict specific you know soundtrack that they that a composer writes and then an orchestra you know whoever uh, performs it, but they don't just sit there and look at the film and do it in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of interesting. By alternating the hymn-based vocalization and jazz rhythms, Van Peebles created a sound that foreshadowed the use of sampling and hip-hop music. Uh, like I was saying before, kind of the experimentation of, of the chanting and vocalization combined with bits of music and stuff, it, it does sound very unique, and I can see how that um, could be an inspiration for hip-hop. That's pretty crunchy. Yeah. But yeah, I guess in uh, Van Peebles also recalled that, quote, music was not really used as a selling tool in movies at the time. Even musicals, it would take three months for the release of the movie before they would bring out an album. So because Van Peebles didn't have any money for traditional advertising methods, he decided to release the soundtrack album uh, early in anticipation for the film's release to build publicity for the film so he could help, you know, build awareness to its music. Yeah, it's, so, it's now, funny that he did that because, I mean, that's pretty much normal now, right? That's for, for a lot of films, especially films that um, have to do with musical subjects, yeah, that's very, that's very normal. 
Yeah, he was he was very um, entrepreneurial in a lot of ways, and even just like the, some of the stories that I read about how he had to go out and make this film, and because he had basically no money, he, he had to basically piece this film together himself um, without a studio or anything. It was very independent, mm-hmm. and even like we were saying, like he had to basically compose the music himself. I think that a lot more than Shaft kind of became the part of the signature of black exploitation is the the gritty sort of simplicity to it that came across in a film like this as opposed to Shaft, which was much more choreographed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, even though for him it was out of necessity, it sort of became a trope, I suppose, of the genre that, you know, these movies were low budget. They weren't made with, like, you know, the best equipment, you know, yeah. money could buy, and they were slapped together very quickly. Mm-hmm. But yet, you know, it's for something like this or for something like Shaft, you know, they, they had... They make it on these shoestring budgets and then actually become fairly successful in their own right. So they were kind of the first, you know, sleeper hits. I guess that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it, it's funny that these, that Sweet Sweetback and Shaft are both considered like the first ones in their own right because I mean, within the black exploitation spectrum, I mean, they're pretty much polar opposites. Yeah, yeah. I think it just kind of shows the duality of the genre. You know, the the more choreographed Hollywood backed stuff like that or Foxy Brown as opposed to the more, um, I guess, gritty sort of independent things like Sweet Sweet Back or Superfly. Mm. So with everything that we've been talking about in mind, uh, let's go ahead and listen to a little clip of the theme from Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song by Earth, Wind, and Fire. It is, it is a bit repetitive. This one is actually incredibly repetitive. So I, I don't want to say anything necessarily about Van Peebles musical talents, but it's not the most uh, dynamic, dynamic, but it's, 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 it's catchy. And, I mean, at least to give him credit, he probably more than anyone else at the time put Earth, Wind, and Fire on the map. Oh, definitely. I mean, this so. was like I, this is like one of the first things they did. I think this helped yeah. give them some some traction, so that's pretty cool. Indeed. What have we got next, Mr. Kyle? Um, up next on our list, we got the film and subsequent song to go along with the film, Across 110th Street, obviously done by Bobby Womack. I think we've played it on the show before because it's just that awesome. Mm-hmm. Bobby Womack wrote and performed all of the songs on the soundtrack for the film, and it was actually fairly successful. It pulled in uh, $10 million at the box office, which for the 70s, that was pretty big. Nice. The title song, Across 110th Street, reached number 56 on the pop chart, number 19 on the R&B chart. So, fairly successful. Not as not as well as Shaft, but still pretty good. So, actually, I'm a little surprised, actually, because it only, it only barely reached the top 20 on R&B. So. Yeah, right? To be fairly honest, I think this song got a lot more um, credit, or I guess popularity, when it was used uh, in Jackie Brown, probably even more than the original oh, by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because not only was it used in this film, it was used in, as I said, Jackie Brown, and also 2007 film American Gangster. Mm. That was, oh, that was the one with Denzel Washington. Remember that movie? That was good. I just got I reminded of that. I saw that. Yeah, it was, this, uh, it was this movie with uh, Denzel Washington. He basically plays, like, a sort of black mafia boss. It was actually not bad, mm. and I don't even like Denzel Washington. Oh, I had a question for you. 
Yes. Just off the record. I don't remember. I was looking at exploitation or something, and I found I didn't know if it was any good, but it was made in the '90s. I don't remember what it's called, but it has Lawrence Fishburne, and it's like a '30s gangster movie, but it's black black exploitation. Interesting. Do and it sounded kind of cool. I couldn't. I didn't know whether it was any good or if you had seen it though. Do you remember the name of it? No, I don't. I would have to look it up. Let me look it up super quick. Oh, Hoodlum. Oh yeah, I think that's it. It looks like it. Just yeah. Yeah. Never, never seen it. Black gangsters in 1930s Harlem fights Dutch Schultz, who is trying to horn in on their numbers racket. It's like a 30s black exploitation with him. I don't know. I never seen. I don't know if it's any in- good, but it sounded interesting. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I've never seen it ever. Okay, so um, okay, regarding the film across 110th Street, um, its plot is pretty simple. It's uh, by the book African American Lieutenant who has to work with a racist but streetwise captain. Uh, in NYPD's 27th Precinct, which is stationed in Harlem. Hmm. For those of you that don't know, which is most people, 110th Street is kind of considered the, the barrier of Harlem, the last street until you get to, to a nicer area. Mm-hmm. So in the film, they're, they're look, these, these two uh, cops are looking for these three black men who slaughtered seven, got seven people, you know, other black gangsters, time gangsters, whatever, in a, in a robbery of money from a local uh, Harlem policy bank. So... The mafia lieutenant, the bad guy, um, and his two henchmen are also after the, the black men. Basically, the Italian mafia and the police are after these three black guys that killed a bunch of black guys and Italian mafia members, t- to put it simply. Yeah, that's the movie. <laughs> cool. But yeah, it's, I mean, it doesn't have a lot of massively big stars, as most of these really didn't at the time. Right. Um, the one thing that is notable, notable, though, in the film is that from a technical standpoint, it was the first film to use um, a self-blimped camera, which means that it's a smaller-sized camera that is allowed to also pick up sound in the device while the, rather than using a separate recording device. So this, the fact that this camera that they used was so small allowed for the production to not only use more handheld shots and smaller locations than normal, but also record the usable sound at the same time, which okay. before this movie was never done in any movie. That's cool. So it was kind of groundbreaking from a technical standpoint as well as just, you know, furthering the black exploitation genre. Mm-hmm. Well, so. I mean, like, uh, in terms of using, having a smaller camera, it's easy to, easier to move around, and even for, like, handheld shots and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see how that can be really useful, because in a lot of these films, they actually went to Harlem and locations like that, and they just shot it on the streets yeah. so that it was yeah. real. This so this if they don't have to set up a huge um, film setup, that's always for the better. Exactly. I mean, this this one I know for sure was filmed in Harlem. Mm-hmm. So and actually, sometimes they would. I don't. I don't know about this film, but I think um, Sweet Sweetback. I think there were at times they didn't have permits mm-hmm. to shoot stuff, so they would just film it really quickly and get out of there. Mm-hmm. And I think they even filmed. I want to. I don't remember, but I think they filmed a scene with like a car burning, but they didn't have permits to do it. <laughs> and and then like when a fire truck shows up, it's an actual fire truck that showed up showed up to put out the fire. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's kinda, so I mean, like we're at, we're talking about this level of, of filmmaking, which is kind of guerrilla filmmaking, almost. <laughs> pretty much, some more than others. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So pretty notable film. Uh, let's listen to a quick clip of the title track, "Across 110th Street" by Bobby Womack. Sweet. 
I think we've played this on the show before, but um, really good song. Probably one of my favorites just in general, let alone Black Exploitation. Right. But it's just funny because I, I think I got a lot more traction when it was used in Jackie Brown because that kind of resurfaced, the, it re, uh, reignited the whole Black Exploitation genre in the 90s and also the career of Bobby Womack. Right. Ooh, we learned, sadly, um, in the 90s he had an very unfortunate act. No, that wasn't Bobby Womack. That was someone else. That was the Superfly guy. That was Curtis Mayfield. That's right. I get them two mixed up all the time. Speaking of Curtis Mayfield. (laughs) Accidental tie-in, yay. (laughs) The next film that we want to talk about is Superfly, and that soundtrack for that movie was done by Curtis Mayfield. So what happened to him again? Yeah, remember in the 90s, he was at a show, and like a a light from the stage fell on him and paralyzed him from Uh, the neck down, and he... And then he also contracted diabetes, so for like the next ten years he was com- mostly completely immobilized and wrought with the plague of diabetes, which co- had to, which caused his legs to have to be amputated. But anyway, so um, Superfly is one of the few films of any of any movies to have ever been outgrossed by its soundtrack, and it did so tenfold. I mean, it was it's ridiculous how much more money that the that the soundtrack made than the actual film itself. Mm. which is saying a lot for Mr. Curtis Mayfield. Yeah. The main character in the film, Superfly, is named Priest, and his car is a 1971 customized Cadillac Eldorado. This type of Eldorado had the largest V8 engine ever produced in a production vehicle. The car belonged to KC, an actual hustler and pimp from Harlem who plays a pimp in the film. So this pimp, KC, he met the director, Nate Adams, in a hotel lobby, and Adams asked him if he wanted if he could use his car in the film. And Casey agreed, but later telephoned Adams, accusing him of lying and saying, no niggers are making no movies. <laughs> Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically, he, they, the, the director, Nate Adams, borrowed, wanted to borrow his car for the film, but and he let him, but then, because black exploitation was basically still very not done, so this pimp, Casey, was like, wait a second, black people don't make movies. So he thought he just stole it from him. Oh, he thought so. He thought he was. Oh, because I wrote a paper on this one too. I, that sounds sort of familiar. So wait, I don't remember what the context was. So, oh, like he didn't believe that the black people were actually making movies or something. Yeah, he didn't believe that, like, you know, a, there could be a black director. Basically, <laughs> that's pretty uh, funny. Um, but yeah, what's funny about that is um, because he borrowed this car from this pimp, which was very highly customized, even from a regular Cadillac. The film actually helped start this trend in car customization in America, known as the Pimp Mobile. <laughs> so after after this movie became success, successful for what it was, um, a lot of aspiring drug dealers, gangsters, and pimps began modifying their cars as a result of watching it. Mm. So the film like led to this like car culture called Pimp Mobile, you know, um, which before then really wasn't a thing. But I mean, it still is today. I mean, it's, it, it, to some extent, it's it's evolved. But like you know that stupid show, Pimp My Ride or whatever, yeah. that, that's the hokey version of it. But yeah, it's it, it spawned the sort of African American car culture that really there wasn't, <laughs> other than the fact that they all bought Cadillacs. Yeah, it really wasn't, you know, around before then. Yeah. When uh, when I hear about when I hear the term car culture, I think a lot of like the fifties, early sixties. Classic cars type thing because I mean there was a big because like post war there was a big boom automobile of, boom yeah yeah I think of that and I guess it died out in the early sixties probably 
It so, died out. In, uh, I, I don't know. Out. You might know better than I do. It died out a bit in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Oh, that uh, late? Okay. It also really kind of unfortunately died out a lot in the late 70s because of the oil embargo. Right. And the Carter, which shot gas up. And then uh, cars like these Cadillacs that got like two miles to the gallon <laughs> were no longer really seen as very viable cars. And that's uh, that's really when the Japanese cars took off. Mm. Like, you know, like Nissan and before Nissan actually it was Datsun. Um, you know, Honda and Toyota and all those really became pretty big. Mm. Yeah, my dad owned, uh, in the like early 80s, owned, I think, uh, Toyota Celica. That he said was pretty nice. And they, every, it's, it's an 80s car, and you know, they're all, they all look like square origami pieces of crap. But, yeah. But yeah, it's just it's just funny that, I guess, getting back to the spell of it, that this uh, spawned a car culture in the African-American community that would really continue for the next 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it's evolved a lot since then, but, you know, the the whole big rims, giant cars, yeah. you know, Cadillacs and Chryslers and all that. Well, it's still, become it's still more of like the hip-hop culture thing. Exactly. Like you said, exactly. it's evolved. It's, it's been adopted by that, but yeah, it's it's just funny that that's where it started. So yeah, that's a very specific thing that spawned from the film. <laughs> Superfly was, was pretty good, because you watched that with me, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. the, the music was good, but... The movie kind of made me want to cry. <laughs> Again, it's part of the genre. You know, bad cinematography, low budget. I think this one was, was one of the ones that was filmed on, like, one of those 16mm uh, cameras. Mm. Really just fantastically bad script writing. So it's it's good. It's one of those so bad it's good kind of movies, I guess, yeah. is a good way to describe it. It's kind of it's kind of an interesting one, too, because um, the main actor... What's his name? The main actor? I don't remember his name. Uh Priest? Hold on, I have it up here. <laughs> That's his actual name. Uh, Ron O'Neill. Okay, yeah. He's actually very, um, for, a, for a black guy, he's actually very light-skinned. So it actually felt a little different from some of the others, just because like it was a black expectation, but he's like, he almost looks white sometimes, depending on the on the shots. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of an interesting take on that. Kind of an aside, but didn't Curtis Mayfield even actually perform in the movie? Oh, yeah, there's. Yeah, I think there's a scene where they go into a club and, and yeah, Mayfield, and he's playing on stage or something. He's actually playing on stage and he's yeah. playing um, probably Pusher Man, perhaps. There's uh, a lot of good music from this movie. I think Pusher Man was played when they were I don't know they were doing a drug deal. I think he played what's the what's the pop they one from the Freddy's Dead. I think that's what he played. Oh, okay. But then Freddy was an actual character from the movie who yeah. died. But yeah, Freddy's Dead is easily my favorite song off that album. Yeah. But that's not the one we're playing. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, the, the whole the whole soundtrack is actually it's basically just a really classic soul album. Yeah, a lot of good uh, actually because I mean the the title track was popular obviously, but um, there's at least a few others on there that are almost equally as popular. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So it's pretty cool. Well, why don't we go ahead and listen to a clip of the title track "Superfly" by Curtis Curtis Mayfield, really good artist. Unfortunate demise, I suppose. Yeah. But he definitely made a name for himself with this movie. And more than a lot of artists helped helped legitimize uh, the genre. Yeah. Because the album was so ridiculously successful. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, another 
another film that's probably along with Shaft one of the biggest of this black exploitation genre is the film Foxy Brown, and the the music for that was done by Mr. Willie Hutch. And I guess for for Willie Hutch, he had a commercial success for, for the '73 soundtrack that he did for the movie The Mac. Mm. So he went and then did the sounds for um, this 1974 Foxy Brown. Well, The Mac was a black exploitation too, right? Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, okay. Basically, yeah, he he did well on that, so then they sought him out to do the thing for Foxy Brown after that. Cool. Foxy Brown, obviously, being the more successful of the two. Mm-hmm. This is this is funny because um, Peter, you saw the movie Coffee, right? Yeah. Um, apparently, I don't know if you knew this. I totally didn't. Um, according to the director Jack Hill, the movie Foxy Brown was actually intended to be a sequel to Coffee. Uh, that sounds familiar. Starred, yeah. Which also starred Pam Greer. Yeah, because she was the main character in both. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think in Coffee she was like a nurse or something. Yeah. Um, in fact, the working title of the film originally was, quote, Burn, Coffee, Burn. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, American International Pictures decided at the last minute they didn't want a sequel, even though Coffee was actually a really big hit in and of itself. Uh, therefore, it w- wasn't ever actually said what Foxy Brown was supposed to be in relation to Coffee, because right. Coffee was I nerfs. Think, yeah, I think, now that you mentioned that, that sounds person. familiar. I think it's like the unofficial sequel to it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they're technically separate. Yeah, so unfortunately, yeah, because of that break, they, they, were, they kind of for, had some forced plot holes in the movie because it was no longer able to be a, established as a sequel. But that's black exploitation for you. Yeah. But yeah, the film put Pam Greer on the map uh, easily as a black sex symbol of the 70s. I can take it. Yeah. Along with black exploitation, it also... I wouldn't say that this was necessarily a subgenre of black exploitation, but it was it was a subset of this concept of strong female lead characters, mm-hmm. which hadn't really been done before in the seventies because that was just you know when the whole women's lib movement was going on, right. which I think also helped was a big influence on this film. Yeah. So it kind of helped with that whole you know women can be leading can have leading roles as well. Women can be strong-headed characters in films and that and not just you know foils or sex symbols for male characters right well uh, i mean like just black exploitation in general i mean it's the kind of the strength of the image of, of the black person in general so i mean i think the whole strong woman thing kind of almost piggybacked off of that it was basically the this strong female thing was an inevitable side effect of the concept of strong black characters but yeah no foxy brown definitely one of the more successful I think we discussed a bit in uh, when we were discussing Tarantino. This was obviously the, the major influence when he made his film Jackie Brown, because it also starred Pam Greer. It was like a basically a giant homage to both Foxy Brown and the black exploitation genre in general. I think it's pretty cool that he was able to get her to, to he, be in that. Yeah, even because yeah. that was like you know twenty years later. I really don't think she acted in a whole lot in the nineties. Escape mm. from oh god oh she was in Mars Attacks. I forgot. I love that movie. Was she really? Yep, apparently. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, she's been going pretty strong since since the seventies. So. Has she done anything recently or no? The last thing it says here, she did. She was in that movie Larry Crown, and oh, this makes sense because I think it was produced by Tarantino. She was in that film, The Man with the Iron Fists. Oh, okay. So yeah, Foxy Brown, big movie. Pam Greer, big actress, huge sex symbol in the seventies. Uh, and still, honestly, she looks great today. It's amazing. Yeah. In age. So yeah, let's. Listen to a little clip of the title track, Foxy Brown, performed by Willie Hutch. Hey, 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 
that's Foxy Brown. Uh, really Hutch, he's a pretty, he's a pretty big artist. I mean, did, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he mostly just do like film music? Yeah, I think. Or did he, did. he actually like break out and do his own stuff? I'm not aware of anything he did outside oh. of the film industry, but he very well could have. Yeah, it actually said that he was with Motown before he uh, went on to a more filmic centric centered career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Motown from '73 to all the way to '85, actually. Nice. Yeah, he did the Mac soundtrack, the Foxy Brown soundtrack, and then did some of his own stuff after that. None of it really became that successful. I mean, hugely successful compared to something like Foxy Brown. Mm. So, good stuff. Okay. What do we got up next, Mr. Peter? Coming up next, Mr. Peter, is a movie called <laughs> Let's Do It Again. So this movie was the 1975 sequel to Uptown Saturday Night, which came out in 74, and featured Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby and directed by Poitier. So the soundtrack was written by Curtis Mayfield, who we were just talking about. And it was performed by the fellow Chicagoan group, the Staple Singers. They were a fairly famous girl group in the 70s. The title track, Let's Do It Again, hit number one on both the Billboard Hot 100 and R&B charts in December 1975. The late New York rap artist and the notorious B.I.G. took his alias, Biggie Smalls, from Calvin Lockhart's character in this film. However, the alias could not be used due to ownership issues. That's funny though that Biggie took his name from. Yeah, his, I mean, his, yeah, his unofficial name was always kind of Biggie Smalls, but you just couldn't change his actual name to that. Mm. But I thought that was really funny. I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> funny enough, actually, in this film, George Foreman makes a cameo as a factory worker who challenges Bill Cosby's character, Billy Foster, to a fight in the beginning of the movie. So, I've never seen this movie, but. The, we have to see this movie. <laughs> I think we have to see this movie now just to see George Foreman fight Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember, uh, Peter? I think one of us got a George Foreman grill, and it came with the, this little, like, advertising thing on the box that when you press the button, it, it, would, like, make, it would say phrases by George Foreman, like, this grill knocks out the fat. And so we, like, took it out of the box and put it on your on your door to make, like, a, a doorbell. <laughs> So yeah, people came. They and they're it. supposed you're supposed to push the George Foreman bell so that to ring the doorbell you make him talk. Good times. The only time I remember someone actually using it was when some maintenance guy came and he, <laughs> I had the window open. I didn't know he was there, but he actually I heard the George, the George bell as we called it, and I looked out and he was there. So he actually thought it was a real doorbell. That's amazing. Oh God, I missed that. I still have it, but I don't have the right type of. Does I don't know. It was hard. I thought it broke. Well, the battery ran out, oh. and it's really hard to get into the compartment to put a new battery in there. It's like one of those stupid watch batteries. Oh. Um, but I it does. I do have it, and it could be fixed, and I think it should be fixed. Side note: Didn't one of the Staples sisters just die like this January? I don't. I'm looking. Uh, I can't find I which one. I know Mavis Staples is still kicking it. Yeah. It was it was Yvonne Staples, I think, that just passed away. Oh, okay. Anyways, I didn't uh, they all sisters. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, cool. there's even Pop Staples, which is their father. He was kind of like their father in Pop Bruce. Staples. Pop Staples. Does yeah. he, did he invent Staples? No. Pop Staples was an American gospel and R&B musician, and oh. a little figure in gospel in the 1960s and 70s. Good to know. Um, in 2002, it was announced that Will Smith and his production company, Overbrook Entertainment, had secured the rights to the trilogy for remakes to star Smith and to be distributed by Warner Brothers. Smith stated that he hoped to get Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence, and other famous um, black stars to be in these films. Uh, in 2012, last year, 
It was revealed that Adam McKay will direct the remake of Uptown Saturday Night with Will Smith and Denzel Washington as the leads. So is that supposed to be coming out maybe this year? I haven't heard anything about it since, but mm. they released that little nugget last year, and if they don't have anything else big going on, why they didn't just get Bill Cosby to reprise his role, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Yeah. But that's kind of going with what you were saying is with uh, remakes of Yeah, that's, that's part of the reason I mentioned it a little prematurely, but yeah, I saw that they were doing a remake of this, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wish more films went this route. Well, like we were saying... The uh, soundtrack for this film was performed by the Staple Singers. And we can go ahead and listen to a little clip of Let's Do It Again, the title track for this film. You know what's funny is I love this song. I had absolutely no idea it had anything to do with any film until mm. I searched it. I just thought it was just a song that they sang and that was popular. It was one of my heard songs by them, actually. Mm. And I had no idea it was not, not only used for a film, it was the title of a film. So yeah, I, thought, uh, I think that happened a lot because we were saying before how a lot of, since this was mostly early to mid-70s, a lot of punk and soul artists and groups actually got their start doing soundtrack music for black exploitation films. So it's not that surprising that sometimes, you know, they'll have songs that yeah. a lot of people actually don't know were from these films because a lot of so many of these movies were really obscure and we don't even know about that. I mean, like, unless you really go research it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I can see how that could happen. And that's happened to me before, too. Yeah, good film. Uh, we haven't seen it, but it's definitely one that I think we're going to have to put in our short list of things to watch here pretty soon because... It has Bill Cosby, that alone. And George. And it has Bill Cosby fighting George Foreman, <laughs> which is basically mine and Peter's ultimate fantasy. One of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for I guess our last film of the uh, of this listing, probably one of mine and Peter's all-time favorite films, yes. is the uh, recent 2009 film Black Dynamite, which is basically just a modern spoof on black exploitation in the most ludicrous way I guess they possibly could. It's funny, because you know, some people say it's a spoof of black exploitation, other people say, well, it is in itself a black exploitation as well, which is pretty obvious. But, I mean, they, it's it's funny on so many levels because of they make fun of these little nuances of the style of filmmaking in the 70s mm-hmm. and like the low budget and everything. And if, if you, the more you understand that whole thing, the movie is just ten times more funny. Than if, yeah. if you don't understand it. It's, it's kind of one of those, like, not to sound horribly hipster here, but you kind of have to be a film buff of sorts to realize how funny this film is. Yeah. Or at least have seen a lot of 70s movies. Yeah. All-time favorite filmic moment in the movie was when there was the car chase, and he was chasing the guy in the Porsche. And then when the Porsche went off the, cl- off the cliff, it turned into, like, like a pacer or something. Oh, because they had a shot of a film or a, of a car going off a cliff and exploding. Yeah, but they only had one shot of that. So whatever, whenever a car goes off a cliff, it's the same shot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What kind of car it was? And they can't just destroy a Porsche. <laughs> but yeah, as I was saying, 2009 film made by starring Michael J. White as Black Dynamite, but he also helped write the film along yeah. with Sally Richardson, Arsenio Hall. I love Arsenio Hall. That guy's hilarious. Mm. In the, in the film, Black Diamond is a former CIA agent who must avenge his brother's death while cleaning the streets 
of a new drug called Smack <laughs> that is ravaging the community. And I guess the film actually had a trailer and funding before there was even a script, which is insane. Yeah. Um, the film was shot in a mere 20 days in Super 16 format, and the, you know, cheap, low-budget style. Right. Um, it was released in the U.S. in in October 16th of 2009. Didn't you guys see it, like a screening of it somewhere? We had seen the the trailer for it before it was actually finished, uh-huh. and we were thinking, oh man, we can't wait till this movie comes out, but there's not like a release date or anything because it's like an independent thing. And then, uh, by chance, one day we walked past, this guy was giving out um, free movie tickets to like advanced screenings and stuff, mm-hmm. and we were walking by and we said, oh, no thanks, but all at the same time we realized on his clipboard he had a picture of Black Diamond, so... We got tickets to go see this film actually before it was the final cut because there were some minor changes in it actually because they they hadn't finished the sound design or something so the cut we saw um, it was was slightly different from the final one mm. but uh, so we actually did get to see it a few months before it came out and it completely exceeded all expecta- expectations of how hilariously amazing it was. For those of you, if you are, if any of you out there are fans of it, you will be excited to know that I, the director Scott Sanders. Um, said that both he and Michael White had ideas for a sequel. Yeah. So yeah, I guess he hinted that a sequel was going to be was being in the process of being written when he was doing an interview on uh, G4's Attack of the Show, um, and he stated in, in April of last year that he's pretty sure filming is going to begin at the end of the at the end of that year. So hopefully it will have already begun. At the end of 2012. Yeah, at the end of 2012. So, but wait, do we know if it started? Because I mean, we're already in March. I have no idea. I didn't. You can Google it. I guess we can figure it out. But yeah, I guess according to him, uh, Michael, uh, the decision that had been reached that the direction of the film, the, the sequel was going to be that of a Western comedy in the same vein of Blazing Saddles meets Buck and the Preacher, mm. which sounds amazing. I love Mel Brooks. <laughs> so, but if, if there's even a nugget of truth to that, I am overjoyed because yeah. that film was just probably one of my top five favorite comedy films. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say top five films, but easily one of my top five favorite comedy movies. Yeah. And that's saying something, because I love comedy. Question. This, okay, the song by Charles Hughes, this wasn't actually released in 2009, some, which is a much older song, right? Or no? Oh, yeah, that's correct, because, well, the this, this song, I think it's just called Dynamite. And, yeah, I think you're right. And it was released for some other black exploitation in the 70s. I think it was really obscure. Was it maybe Dolomite, that one? No, Dolomite had a different... I don't remember which movie it was. Oh. But um, I know that the makers of Black Diamond had a hell of a time tracking down who had the rights to this song, because it was basically perfect. Mm. And, and they did eventually uh, secure the rights for that. But yeah, that, that's actually a good point. I forgot about that, that the song was written for a completely different film, like, four years ago. But they were able to use it, and it fits perfectly, so... That's pretty cool. So yeah, with that in mind, let's listen to a little clip of the song Dynamite by Sir Charles Hughes. Awesome song, awesome movie. Check out Black Dynamite if you can. Actually, I think it's on Netflix um, if you want to watch it instantly. If you have a Netflix account. I could take it. Definitely a hilarious movie. It's one of those ones that's definitely worth better watched with a group of people. Uh, so yeah, um, I think that's it for our exploitation segment here yeah. on Yeah, and, and like we said, I mean, the, the, the core of exploitation covered something like 71 to 75, but 
uh, obviously it's it's you still get a couple even today. Mm-hmm. There were you know dozens of them back in the seventies. So and we've only touched on what like seven of them. So there you know if 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 the concept of this subgenre interests you, I mean there's more than enough films for you to check out. Yeah, I mean in, in my opinion you can't be a true film buff without an appreciation for this genre. I mean you don't have to like love every movie. You just have to appreciate the filmic impact it made. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, that's all that's all our stuff. Go check out Black Dynamite and any of these other films if you find if you can find them. Something else to check out is our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash get your funk. We like to post our episodes there as well as other cool links and stuff like that. Also check us out on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show and the more you like and rate us, the more easier it'll be for people to find us on iTunes. And of course, uh, check out our host website, eighthcircuit.com. They have lots of cool news and other podcasts as well and other video series. Um, also really cool stuff worth checking out. So I can take it. Well, this has been your host, Peter. And this has been your other host, Kyle. Thanks for listening to Funk Radio. See us next time. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.